The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to take your Bibles now, if you would, and open them to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18. And I'm sure some of you will be happy to hear that we're moving beyond the subject matter that we've had for the past uh, several weeks as we're dealing with discipline in the church. Uh, we actually are not moving on from it today, but we are adding another part to it, uh, a, another very important part, as the Bible here speaks of forgiveness. So our subject this morning will be forgiveness. And I'm sure that you've probably heard someone say, or you may have said it yourself, I cannot forgive that person. Maybe somebody has done something against you that's so egregious that you think that the worst has been done to you and there's just no way that you can fathom in your mind how that person could ever do anything to make it right again. You've done the math, you've figured it all out, and you've determined that someone has treated you so badly that you could never release them from the wrong that they've done. Well, if you've ever felt that way, you're human. Now, we can forgive little infractions such as happen to us day by day, but it's really not in the fabric of the human heart to be forgiving when someone has wronged us terribly or has wronged us frequently. So rather than having a spirit of forgiveness in us, uh, we have the feeling of revenge that I, you've done something to me, so I want to give back twice what you've done to me. And that's really the way that people think. That's the way that it operates in the world. And if there should be a, for, a spirit of forgiveness in, in anyone, it doesn't come from the natural inclination of our heart. Now, in this passage, Jesus shows that life in his kingdom is different, that people that are in his kingdom think differently. His kingdom operates on different principles. And if people in his kingdom or say that they're in his kingdom don't act in this way, then they're not actually the children of God. Now, in this, this morning's message and next week, I want to explore the topic of forgiveness. And Jesus taught that in the last part of this chapter in a parable. So if you'd stand with me again for the reading of God's Word, we'll look at Matthew 18, beginning in verse number 21. Matthew 18, verse number 21. Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Till seven times? Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him, which owed him ten thousand talents. But forasmuch as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife and children and all that he had, and payments to be made. Servant, therefore, fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion, and loosed him, and forgave him the debt. But the same servant went out, and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence, and he laid hands on him, and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, 
and I will pay thee all. And he would not, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after he had called him and said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt because thou desiredst me. Shouldst not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. Father, thank you for this word that we've read today and help us to learn something here that will help us as we try to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. My subject this morning is the art of forgiveness. Forgiveness is the character of the forgiven, and forgiven is the way that we can describe every person that is in the kingdom of God. I mean, though we come from different backgrounds, and though we may have different ethnicities, um, though we differ in many different ways, yet all of us who are in the kingdom of God, we have this one common characteristic. All of us who have Christ as Savior and are born again, we all have this characteristic, this one thing in common, that we have been forgiven. Now, as we've studied in this chapter, we've learned that the entire teaching that Jesus gives here flows out of a question that the disciples ask him in verse number 1. They said, or they asked the question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And from that question, Jesus began to give examples of humility that must characterize his people. Now, we've learned especially in the past few weeks that humility, the humility of a Christian does not exclude the necessity of confronting sin in the church. That we do, or we must address each other's sin, And when sin is not repented of, it requires an action of church discipline. But those actions must be done in humility, recognizing that if not for the grace of God, that we would never have been forgiven of the sins that we have committed. The grace of God has covered all of our sins. And so in verses 15 through 20, we learned about church discipline, but it was mostly from the standpoint of What's going on in the heart of a rebellious person? What are the steps that we're to take in order to bring a person back into fellowship? What what happens when a person sins against us and they won't repent? And and when do we take the matter before the church? and, And when do we make them aware? And then what is the church to do about it? And so we were mostly concerned about the attitude of the heart of a person who is guilty of sin, but they have not repented of it. Now, the reason that we're told in verse number 16 that when a person sins against us that we are to take two or three witnesses with us to talk to that person is so that they might judge the attitude of that person who's been confronted with sin. So the discipline hinged upon the attitude of the person who needed to repent. But as we come to this particular part of Scripture, the emphasis changes, and now we see more about what should be going on in our heart. What is the spirit and the attitude that we are to have towards that person who has wronged us in the church? Now, we take a look at this, and we see that Peter had heard all of this teaching that Jesus had given about discipline and the attempts that 
He said we are to make in order to try and restore a person uh, back to the fellowship of the church. And so he wondered about this, and he asked, how many times do we have to go through this? That if my brother sins against me, and he comes and he asks for me, asks me for forgiveness, how many times do I have to forgive him? In verse 21, then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Till seven times? So Peter wanted to know, isn't there a point at which we can just shut the door and we can say this person has done too many things, the sins against me are too egregious, they're too frequent, the violations are too numerous, and so are, are we ever released from this commandment that we are to forgive people? Well, do you ever wonder why Peter might have asked a question like that? Could it have been because of some personal experience that he had? Or perhaps Peter knew the human heart, he knew, his own, he knew his own heart, and he knew that sinners sin, and so it wouldn't be long for a person that had wronged you would do it again in the same way, or if not in the same way, they might do it in another way. And so isn't there a time when we can just say, well, that's enough, enough is enough, and so I can't forgive you any longer? Well, we want to talk about that, and, and here is what we need to consider first. Number one, it's not a question of how many times I should forgive, but why should I forgive at all? It's not a question of how many times I should forgive, but why should I forgive at all? And I think that the answer that Jesus gave to the question was quite a surprise. See, Peter had been traveling with Jesus for three years, and he'd witnessed the numerous acts of compassion, and he saw that Jesus had no malice in his heart toward anyone. Although he did confront people with their sins, he, he never did that in a cruel or a hateful way. And there's some people that really miss this about Jesus. They, they think that he was just a nice person, that Jesus really didn't condemn anyone for their sins, but he was content just to let people go as they were, and, and he, he wouldn't judge anybody because of their sin. But you notice that in every encounter that Jesus had with self-righteous people, that he never let them off the hook with their sin. He always confronted the sin and demanded that there should be a change. And so he never left people as they were if they wanted to receive his forgiveness. So Peter had seen that gracious attitude of the Savior. He saw that he was quite different from the teachers that he had grown up with through the years of traveling with Jesus and all the confrontation that he and the other disciples had had with the scribes and Pharisees and the rabbis at that time, he knew that there was something quite extraordinary about Jesus, that his was a religion of the heart, that it wasn't just an outward show that he was trying to give. It was a religion truly of the heart. And he was always going beyond the Pharisaical interpretations of the law. For example, in the Sermon on the Mount, he caught the Pharisees in their self-righteousness. He called them on their sins, such as anger and lust. And he told them that in their anger that they had broken God's commandment not to murder. And he told them that in their lust they'd broken God's commandment not to commit adultery. And so Jesus put an unexpected interpretation on the law and brought everyone to the conclusion that no matter who you are, even the best of the best, even the Pharisees who thought that they were the best people at keeping the law there, that there ever was, even they didn't keep the laws of God. 
And so he would expect that Jesus' teachings on forgiveness would be no different. The rabbis had taught that if you forgive a person once, then you forgive them twice, then you forgive them a third time. When you have forgiven them the third time, that the limit of forgiveness had been reached and you didn't really need to forgive a person a fourth time. So if you had been offended a fourth time that you never really needed to offer that person forgiveness. Well, we look at Scripture and we wonder where would they ever come to such a conclusion? I mean, they claim to be great teachers of the Scriptures. So how would they ever come to the conclusion that four times was, three times was the limit, four times you don't forgive someone? Well, they took passages such as we find in Amos chapter 1, verse number 3. It says, Thus saith the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. The sixth verse says, Thus saith the Lord, For three transgressions of Gaza, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. In the ninth verse, Thus saith the Lord, For three transgressions of Tyrus, and for four... I will not turn away the punishment thereof. And so they interpreted that to mean that God would tolerate up to three transgressions, but the fourth was the breaking point. And so the Jewish Babylonian Talmud said, when a person sins against another, they forgive him once, they forgive him a second time, they forgive him a third time, but the fourth time they do not forgive him. So they'd taken these scriptures and they'd put a limit on forgiveness. They, they were keeping track of the sins. They were adding it all up, adding up the transgressions, and forgiveness was a commodity to them that you could trade for a certain price. Well, Peter was raised in that kind of thinking. And so when he said, till seven times, do I forgive him seven times? Peter was doing the same. He was counting up transgressions. And knowing that Jesus was prone to go beyond what the rabbi said and what the Pharisees said, He offered up this thought, just what he believed was a magnanimous gesture. Should I forgive till seven times? Now, that would be more than twice than what the rabbi said. Surely that's enough to forgive someone seven times. And I thought, I think he thought that. But he really had the same idea that the uh, the Pharisees had in principle, that forgiveness is a commodity. That, that Peter was still counting up those transgressions, and Jesus is trying to show that, that forgiveness is not the magnanimous keeping of a commandment. And so it must have shocked him when Jesus replied in verse number 22, Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. So Jesus removed the limit. Peter was keeping track of the sin, But the language of the Scripture here indicates that Jesus removed all of the limits on forgiveness. And what he does not mean here is that we multiply 70 times 7, and we count them all up, count the sins up, count up all the transgressions, and when they've reached 490, well, now we've reached the golden number, and now we don't have to offer forgiveness any longer. Well, that's not the thought of the Scripture at all. What Jesus is doing is removing all limits of forgiveness. Now he says, Peter, you need not keep count and abide by the letter of the law. You are to keep on forgiving. And when you keep count of the transgressions that someone has made against you, you really haven't forgiven at all. But what you must do is to forgive as God forgives. And what God did was to cast all sin behind his back and remember it no more. 
In Psalm 103, verse 12, the psalmist wrote, As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. But the person that keeps count says, Well, you've used up one of your opportunities of forgiveness. And now you've used up two of your opportunities of forgiveness. And now you've used up three of your opportunities of forgiveness. And it's, it's like counting the nine lives of a cat. I mean, soon you run out of lives, and there aren't any more. So you don't have to forgive anymore. But that's not the way that it is in the kingdom of God. Well, that brings us to this parable of verses 23 to 35. And this is an illustration of why we should forgive. Now, in the previous section, the subject was discipline. And now Jesus follows with instructions about forgiveness. There is a most glorious reason for this that puts us all under the obligation of forgiveness so that we can never shortchange it. We can never expect that forgiveness has a limit. Now, it's illustrated here by a comparison. And the comparison is of how much have we been forgiven? How great are our transgressions? And so our forgiveness of others is linked to the way that God has forgiven us. And so we must see forgiveness in light of what happened at Calvary. How Jesus endured the beating of a cat of nine tails. He was stripped of his clothing. He was spat upon. He was mocked. He was placed on a cross and nails were driven into his hands and to his feet there It was a long, thorny crown that was pressed into his brow. And through that blood and the sweat and the tears and the agony, Jesus looked up to his Father in heaven and he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Forgiveness has to be framed in the light of Joseph, who was a type of Christ. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. For years he was kept in prison And the bitterness of that experience could have just eaten him alive. It could have welled up in him, and he could have dwelt on that bitterness the whole time that he was there. But years later, when he came to be second in command to Pharaoh in Egypt, it was a time when vengeance was his to have, and he saw those brothers again that sold him into slavery. But the Bible shows that he had compassion for them. When he saw the fear that was in their eyes, when they realized that their fate was in Joseph's hands, Joseph cried, he had compassion for them, and he said to them, God meant it for good. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And Joseph did not say, you have harmed me too much, there is no way that I can forgive you. But instead, Joseph took his brothers and he hugged them, and he kissed them, and he promised them that he would take care of them and their little ones in the land of Egypt. Forgiveness has to be framed in the light of Stephen, who earnestly preached to his brethren to try to lead them out of the darkness of the slavery of sin and to give them the gospel of Christ whereby they could be saved. But when they wouldn't believe, they took up stones and they began to stone him. And Stephen, as he was dying under those stones that were hitting him, he looked up to God in heaven and he said, Father, lay not this sin to their charge. When he could have said, God, have vengeance on my enemies. You don't forgive like that unless it comes from a place that the human heart knows nothing about. Forgiveness of this sort flows out of the mercies and the grace of a loving Heavenly Father who has been wronged in incalculable ways. 
and let yet he freely forgave. Seventy times seven. Think about, think about how many times that you've wronged God. How many things have you done? Count up the numbers of times that you have offended God and you'll find out that God's forgiveness matches those numbers of your transgressions against him. Countless forgiveness for countless transgressions. Well, now Jesus is going to show in a parable how great this forgiveness is, and he'll show the ingratitude of one who would not forgive even though he had been forgiven. Now, his kingdom is different from the world. His people are different from the world, and they reflect the character of their heavenly Father. So it's not about how many times that we should forgive, but why should we forgive at all? And again, that's tied to the forgiveness that God has given to us. Now notice secondly, number two, is that you must give an account to God. Now in verse number 23, the parable begins, Jesus said, Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. Now notice that phrase, Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened. So the teaching of this passage is to contrast the kingdom of heaven with the kingdom of the world. If you're a child of God, you have been translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. You've been changed from the world's kingdom into God's kingdom. And the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is the place where God rules according to principles of grace. The kingdom of heaven is where justice is always done, but justice is tempered with enormous amounts of mercy. And the kingdom of heaven is the place where God's justice has been satisfied by someone who was perfect and acted on our behalf. Jesus said, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is likened unto a certain king. Now, obviously, the king represents God. And Jesus will show us what God does. The king will take an account of his servants. This is what God will do with his servants. He will take an account. Now, picture in your mind a king, and he sends out word to the far reaches of his provinces that he wants all of his provincial governors to come in and to give a report of the taxes that have been collected in each of the provinces. Now, here in this parable, we see servants, and these servants are not servants like we think of slaves, But rather, these are men of high rank that serve the king. They're high-ranking officials, and the king has given them authority to govern certain of his territories. So they're trusted officials, and they've been given a great responsibility. Now, Peter would have recognized that analogy very quickly because this is exactly the way that Rome operated. Now, we take, for example, Pilate. Everybody knows Pilate. Pilate was the one who sentenced Jesus to death. Pilate was one of the governors of Rome. He was a governor in Judea. And this would be like Pilate being called back to Rome, and he would give an account, and he would come in to see the emperor, and he would appear there, and he would give the account of all the taxes that had been collected that was due to Rome. So the king here represents God, and in this case, these servants or these governors represent you, You are a believer, and you are a subject of God's kingdom, and in a very real sense, you have been placed in a stewardship over God's territory, and his territory is the earth. There are commandments that you are to keep. There's a way that God wants his affairs to be run, and quite frankly, 
most of us, if not all of us, we've done a very miserable job of conducting the affairs that God has given us to have charge over. Now, at some day, at some time, there will come a day of reckoning, and you'll have to stand before God, and you'll give an account of your life. The records will be brought up, and God will see if you have given everything that belongs to him. Now, in the Old Testament, God commanded Israel with a solemn charge. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse number 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. The first word in verse number 4 is the word hear, and in the Hebrew that's the word shema. And so verses 4 through 9 are called the shema. And these were considered to be such important weighty words that the Jewish people would recite these twice every day. In the morning and in the evening, they would recite Deuteronomy, uh, this particular chapter, uh, chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. Jesus repeated the Shema in the New Testament in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. So one day you're going to stand before God and you will answer the charge of this commandment. Did you do what it said? Did you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength? There's an accounting that's going to be given of that commandment. And so Christians are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and the obedience to that commandment is linked to gold and silver and precious stones. Or in other words, the obedience to this commandment brings a reward for God's people. Disobedience to the commandment is compared to wood, hay, and stubble. And at the judgment seat of Christ, these are all those works that were done for the wrong reasons. They had nothing to do with your love for Christ. They were done for the wrong reasons. And the Bible says that all of those things will be burned up in the day of judgment. Well, then Jesus gave a second command in Mark 12, 31. And the second is like, namely this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. So the second commandment comes up in importance right next to the first, and this commandment is actually about love for your fellow man, and forgiveness comes under this commandment. So obedience to these two commandments are paramount in the judgment. And there's an accounting that will be made, and the stewardship of these commandments will be judged. Now, while I'm on this subject, let me just broaden this a bit. Some of you at this moment, you're being confronted with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you have not yet believed. God is calling you today into account with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Where are you right now in relationship to these commandments? Well, if you don't know Jesus Christ, it's impossible. If you haven't trusted him as your Savior, it's impossible for you to obey these two commandments that Christ gave. You can't love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. It's impossible because the only way that you can do that is to know Jesus Christ as Savior. 
And so God is calling you into account right now, and you will stand in judgment for how you have obeyed these commandments. And I can tell you right now, you haven't obeyed them, and you can't obey them unless you know Jesus Christ. Now, this this parable is primarily about Christians that must give an account, but you also, if you don't know Christ as Savior, you must give an account. And do you know what the Bible says about you? Well, this is our third point today. Thirdly, you owe God a debt you cannot pay. You owe God a debt you cannot pay. Now, as Christians, we're reminded that this is where we once were. We owed God a debt that we could not pay, and yet God forgave us of that debt. As an unbeliever... You stand before God and you owe a debt you cannot pay. That's where you are right now. Now in verse number 24, and when he had begun to reckon, that's when the king began to take in, uh, to judge the accounts, one was brought unto him which owed him 10,000 talents. Now let's return to our mind's picture. The king calls in these servants from all over the kingdom and he begins to take an account. And he discovers that there's one servant one of his provincial governors, a high official in whom he has put his trust, and he discovers that this official is short in his accounting. He's 10,000 talents short. This is missing. Now, that may not mean too much to you. You might think of 10,000 talents like $10,000. Well, $10,000, that's a pretty big sum, but when you're talking about a kingdom, that's not very much money at all. Some of you, I think probably most of you that have jobs, you earned $10,000 before the first quarter of this year. And some of you, by the end of the year, when you count up your Social Security and your federal taxes, state taxes and all of that, you'll pay into the government probably $10,000 or more. So $10,000 is not an insurmountable sum. Well, 10,000 talents is not like $10,000. Let me put it in perspective for you. A talent was the largest denomination of currency at that time. One talent, one talent was considered to be just a huge amount of money. All of the taxes that Rome would collect from Galilee, the area of Galilee, would be about 300 talents per year. All of the taxes that they would collect from Idumea, from Samaria, from Judea, would be about 600 talents a year. And so... Combining that, all the territory that surrounded where Jesus and the disciples were out of Palestine, the Roman government would collect 900 talents per year, less than 1,000 talents per year. Let me put it into another perspective for you. We go into the Old Testament and we look at Solomon. Solomon built the temple and there were 3,000 talents of gold that were put into the temple. Now, in Solomon's time, that was considered to be an enormous amount. And that was when there was so much gold in the kingdom that the Bible says that silver, I mean, this is how how much gold they had. Silver was like rocks that were on the ground. In other words, nobody had any counting of silver. You don't think about silver because there's so much gold. Well, Solomon put 3,000 talents into the temple. The nations that surrounded Israel thought that that was just astounding wealth. The queen of Sheba came to visit Solomon, and her mind was boggled by what she saw. And she said, the half has not been told me. 
So all of the gold that Solomon put into the temple was 3,000 talents, and all of the gold that Solomon gained in revenue each year was 666 talents. Now let's go back to this man. This man owes 10,000 talents. Now we're talking about more than 10 times the amount that would have been collected from all of the Palestinian region by Rome. Three times the wealth that the richest man in history put into the temple that he built for God. One talent was equal to 6,000 days wages. That's, that's 16 years of wages. 10,000 talents is equal to 160,000 years of wages. Now, that is an enormous amount. I mean, we really can't even fathom that. And that's what Jesus is trying to get across with a comparison here, that it's so much, it's so huge, the debt is not calculable. It's so far over the top, you can't think in these numbers. Now, do you get the picture? The debt cannot be paid. What this man owed, it was utterly impossible in his wildest imagination he could never pay this debt. And then further... The number 10,000 is the largest number that the Greek language used for counting. Once you get to 10,000, everything is in multiples of 10,000. So you notice in Scripture, for instance, it says that when it talks about the numbers of angels that there are that worship God around his throne, it says there are 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands and thousands of angels. And the Bible speaks that way to let us know that there are so many angels that you could never count the number of them. So the multiple of 10,000 that we find in this scripture is to show that we really can't imagine how great this debt was. And that's what Jesus says about our sins, that we owe God an impossible debt, that the number of our sins is so great it can never be counted. And so when you come under the hearing of the gospel of Christ, you must be brought under the enormity of the debt that you owe to God. It is incalculable. How serious is it? Well, have you ever thought about how many sins that you've committed? How many have you committed today? How many did you commit last week or last year? How many sins have you committed in your lifetime? You can't count the number. And then you think of the value of sin. How how do you put a price on sin? Well, maybe we could try that. What did one sin cost? Just one sin, what did it cost? Did you know that the one sin of Adam caused the condemnation of the entire human race forever? One sin? So how do you count that? There there are countless sins that you don't even know about that you've committed. Do you get the picture here? You owe God a debt you cannot pay. Now, do you know what also it shows? It shows, by contrast, the value of the blood of Jesus Christ that his blood is capable of paying that debt. There is no other commodity that can pay it because God won't accept anything other than the blood of Jesus Christ. And this is why Hebrews talks about how terrible it is for us to trample under our feet the blood of Jesus Christ and to act like it doesn't matter. I mean, I shudder to think how, how God will judge those who hear of the sacrifice of Christ and mock it, and they would leave a place like this where the gospel is preached, not believing in Jesus Christ and still in their sins. How can anybody dare think that they'll face God in the judgment and believe that they'll be in heaven because they're 
pretty good people. The precious blood of Christ is what was required by God for payment. And so do you think that anything that you could do could even match the one drop of the one microscopic drop of the blood of Jesus Christ? One sin condemned the entire human race for eternity? No good deed that you could do of any kind, no amount of good deeds that you could do or what you consider to be good things, not one of them could ever pay for one single sin. And yet you have people that will go to a priest and they'll confess their sins to a priest and the priest will say, well, here's the penance that you must do to be forgiven of your sin. Or they'll bring money to the priest and they'll pay the priest in order to get their loved ones out of this imaginary place called purgatory. Folks, that is a horrible, blasphemous doctrine. It spits on the blood of Jesus Christ because it says that you have the ability to pay for sin. You can't do it. Now, this is a debt that you're going to face. It's a debt that you owe that you're going to have to give an account for. Now, I don't have time to get to the rest of the parable today, but I don't want to leave you hanging at this point. You must understand the terrible weight of your sins against God, that there is a day of reckoning that is coming, and you will give an account, and you'll not be able to skip out on the debt. This is a debt that must be settled in one way or the other. The amount is too large for you to pay. Eternity is not long enough for you to pay it because God is not going to accept anything that you have. You cannot pay this debt. That's the simple truth of the entire message today. You can't pay the debt that you owe to God. So what horrible blasphemy it is, as I've just mentioned, for someone to come and say, well, my good deeds are equal to the blood of Jesus Christ, so I'm going to get to heaven because I do good things. You can't pay for sin. Only Jesus Christ can do it. Nothing you do is equal to the blood of Jesus Christ. And yet that's what people think. Most people think. You meet them on the street. You talk to them or anywhere you go. Do you think you're going to go to heaven when you die? And they say, yes. Why do you think you're going to go to heaven when you die? Oh, I'm a pretty good person. I'm pretty good. Never taking into consideration the debt that they owe to God that they cannot pay. So today, if you will be saved... You must repent of your sins. You must realize that there is no way that you can help yourself. You're lost. You are condemned. There is no hope for you. What you must do is commit yourself to the hands of God and plead for his mercy that he will forgive the debt that you cannot pay. And wonderfully, the Bible says that Jesus Christ will do that for you. He paid the debt that you cannot pay because he offered up his blood on the cross of Calvary. And that is the very thing that God accepts for the payment of sin. Nothing else is accepted. So realize that you are a sinner. You will be called into account for your sins. And you must believe in Jesus Christ to be forgiven of them and to live with God in heaven. Just remember, write it down if you didn't, you owe a debt you cannot pay. Next week we'll come back and we'll look at more of the results of this story and lessons that we can learn from it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word that you've given us today and 
how it should strike fear into our hearts, knowing that we are sinners, that there's nothing that we can offer you, there is no goodness of any kind that we have of our own, that the only thing that we can rely on for the salvation of our souls is the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on the cross of Calvary. So we dare not make any kind of an attempt to add something to Christ's blood by saying that our good works, by keeping of sacraments, by doing penance, by doing anything, saying rosaries or anything else is going to help us to get into heaven because that is serious blasphemy against the blood of Jesus Christ, which is the only way that sins can be forgiven. Lord, we pray that you'd speak to someone's heart today. Speak to Christians. Help us, again, to realize the debt that we've been forgiven of. May we never think that we could not forgive someone who has harmed us when we have been forgiven of so much. And then we pray for those that are lost, that the gospel would penetrate their heart and they would realize this debt that can't be paid. And they would put all their hope and trust in you to deliver them from their sins so they can go to be with Christ in heaven. Father, thank you for what we've learned here today. Bless as we sing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.